Hello, I'm Danielle Yet, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, and we're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on the podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. It's just me in the studio today, at the tail end of summer, highlighting one more of the courses our senior members will be offering this fall. ICS will continue to make its courses available online throughout our regular fall semester in a weekly, in-depth, virtual seminar format. So even if you're not in Toronto, you can take an ICS course for credit toward your degree or out of sheer personal interest. This semester begins soon, the week of September 14th, so have a listen to the last couple of episodes and visit our website to get an idea of what's on offer. Today, Rebecca Smick, Senior Member in Philosophy of Arts and Culture, is joining me once again to tell us about her course, The Aesthetics of Compassion. Every Thursday throughout the fall, from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern Time, Rebecca will reflect alongside course participants on the place of compassion in Western philosophy, theology, and art. So without further ado, here's Rebecca to tell us more about it. I'm interested in how you came to develop this course in the first place, where your own interest in the topic comes from. And along the way, I'd like to hear a summary of what the course is about itself, uh, as well as what might be new about the course this time around. So my personal interest in the aesthetics of compassion uh, emerged out of my doctoral dissertation, which looked at the way that contemporaries of Michelangelo and near contemporaries of Michelangelo responded to his very famous image of the Pietà, which is now in St. Peter's. Um, in Michelangelo's day, a Pietà was a pretty standard subject matter for images of the Virgin at the time of Christ's death. Taken down from the cross is stretched across the knees of a mourning or lamenting Mary who holds Christ as she would have done when he was a baby or an infant. So the subject of the painting is really what's called Mary's compassion. Uh, or suffering with the passion of Christ. But the surprising feature of 16th century response to Michelangelo's beautiful Vatican Pietà was the way that the work had come to represent for him and many of his contemporaries the very act of making art. So said another way, making art was likened to resting pity or compassion from one's artistic medium through one's sufferings and travails as an artist. Only when your artwork took pity on you, to say it that way, could your art achieve its proper aesthetic effect and then go on to move others. 
So in other words, only when your art achieved the emotion of pity could it be successful as a work of art. This interpretation of the subject matter of the Pieta was so compelling for Michelangelo that the theme occupied him in his spare time as an artist for his entire life. He sculpted many life-size Pietas, um, probably five in total, mostly without commission, meaning that was they were completely for his own interests, so this is very unusual for the time, not commissioned. He also made a numerous, what were called presentation drawings of the subject, which he gave to various friends. And finally, he was working on a sculptural Pietà at the time of his death, a copy of which was placed on his tomb in Santa Croce in Florence. So it was an enormous theme for Michelangelo and sort of discovering why it was so uh, significant for him has, has been an important theme in art history, but it's, I don't think it's been very successfully examined. Anyway, this course grew out of that work uh, and the hope to make real sense of the intricacies of that particular interpretation. So what became apparent is that this idea that art should aim to elicit pity is central to the Western art theoretical tradition with two important ur-texts, if you want to call it that. One comes from the rhetorical tradition in the work of the first century Roman writer Quintilian, and the other is from Aristotle's Poetics. So Quintilian is quite clear that what we, we today might call the aesthetic effect of words should elicit an emotional response in listeners specifically, very specifically, the emotion of pity. In Aristotle, the idea is specifically tied to what's appropriate in tragic drama. A writer of tragic drama should aim to elicit two emotions for Aristotle, pity and fear. So pity is the one we'll be looking at, but as it turns out, these two emotions are quite related in Aristotle, and you'll have to take the course to find out exactly how. But of course, by specifying that the emotion of pity or compassion or this idea of suffering with is appropriate to representations of human tragedy, as Aristotle points out, gets at something pretty fundamental about human beings, um, which is that we are hardwired, in fact, to suffer with those who are suffering. Um, so this idea that compassion refers to caring about the well-being of others has, of course, many ethical implications, uh, which a number of contemporary philosophers like Martha Nussbaum, for example, are really hoping might help reorient contemporary ethics. So it's a natural place to go for art that elicits this um, suffering with in the context of human tragedy. So the, the, that interrelation between pity and tragedy um, you know, is key. But it also raises lots of questions. Um, if you make compassion the end of art in the context of tragedy, you're really raising the bar on compassion as an ethical emotion. So if you think of what we do these days, we often talk about compassion as a way to be mindful of the feelings of others, for example, you know, in the workplace or in the family or you know, in general. We practice sort of compassion light, you might say. But what is the role of compassion in the context of human suffering on the scale of tragedy? So is it a sufficient emotion in the context of severe loss? Could one's compassion even be condescending to those who are in the midst of severe crisis, for example? Is there not potentially an element of paternalism 
in the compassion that, say, affluent Westerners feel for those who suffer severe deprivation in developing countries. So these are some of the questions that get raised, not just in the critical literature of art, when a philosopher like Aristotle turns his mind to consider the nature of compassion, but in the genre of tragic drama itself. So Sophocles, for example, exactly addresses what you might call the problem of victimhood uh, in his tragedy Philoctetes and how compassionate response to Philoctetes' suffering does not necessarily lead to a subversion of his character's dignity. So that's a response to this notion that there's some kind of paternalistic superiority going on when we are in the position to respond to extraordinary tragedy from a position of distance. So not that this particularly settles the matter about the appropriateness of compassion as a response to human tragedy, but such working through of the pros and cons of compassionate response to extraordinary loss is an abiding theme of what was initially considered the highest form of drama in the West on the basis that tragedies can, in fact, promote concern for someone different from oneself and do that through the compelling resources of art. So uh, it is the development of this tradition and its exchange with philosophy that we'll be looking at in the course as we consider what might constitute an aesthetics of compassion. So students interested in aesthetics would obviously have an interest in this course. So would artists and writers who are interested in the history of tragedy. Uh, we'll look at works by Shakespeare and we'll look at Dostoevsky's Crime of Punishment. We'll look at Nietzsche's Thus Spake Zarathustra. Um, two new additions that I will be making probably in the content of the course this year would be to look more carefully at Augustine who is heavily responsible for the Christianization of, the, of this tradition. In the way it gets, gets worked out at a later date, he had some very specific things to say about compassion. Uh, and when you put them together with his ethics of a kind of right love uh, is a way to talk about it. He takes this, uh, an Aristotelian understanding of phronesis and gives it a uh, a, a Christian twist by turning it to a, a kind of love that moves our volition in a correct way. And I, I'd like to explore that a little further myself. The other addition is Simon Weil. And both of these writers, Augustine and Simon Weil, in the language of Martha Nussbaum, would be what she calls pro-compassion in this long consideration of the capacities of compassion to act as a moral emotion. So she's a, she's offering, well, she offers a, a real uh, critique of the history of the ability of compassion to serve as, a, as even the most basic moral emotion. So anyway, those are my, my two additions for sure this year, but there may be some others as I tweak things. So to pick up on your mention of Martha Nussbaum, you've already mentioned a distinction between pity and compassion and you've hinted at some pros and cons to framing aesthetics with pity and compassion. So first, could you draw out what the difference between these terms might be? And then second, could you explain what pity or compassion might have to do with aesthetic experience, especially since pity and compassion can be construed as negative or unpleasant emotions 
while aesthetic experience is often considered to be a certain kind of pleasure? Okay, well, first to address the pity and compassion. Well, the first thing maybe to note is that, you know, I've been using pity and compassion pretty interchangeably because the Greek word elios uh, has generally been translated in English as pity, even though the connotations of suffering with is probably better represented in English by compassion. But as you suggest, pity has negative connotations for modern English speakers, uh, some of which I think come through in what I've already been saying um, around this notion that there's a condescension or a paternalism where, when, where we sit, where we even, shall we say, impose a certain value on people's losses um, from a, a position of comfort, you might say. So those things I've already been referring to, but this particular association of the English word pity with the notion of condescension and superiority really only becomes an issue in English in the Victorian period. So someone like Nietzsche really goes to town uh, trying to separate out these, uh, the difference between pity and, and compassion or an authentic compassion. So there is already a difference um, or problems within the general framework of something that I prefer to call compassion, but use the term pity because that is the way that uh, the Greek word has tended to be translated in English. So it would be a very rare thing. Maybe only someone like Martha Nussbaum would go ahead and, and talk about pity in Aristotle using the term compassion. But I think your bigger question is around what constitutes the aesthetic and how the elicitation of compassion fits with the idea that an aesthetic response is one of pleasure. So that's a, a more difficult question. And in this case, I think the example of Quintilian, this Roman writer who created sort of one of the Ur texts that we'll be looking at, uh, is helpful here. His discussion of the elicitation of pity as a goal for rhetorical language, first of all, takes place practically in the same breath as his discussion of what's called energeia, or the energy that accompanies particularly aesthetic language, language that has a really sensuous, that is really sensuously effective. So he presumes that they are uh, of the same order. So he doesn't really work hard to make distinctions between the two. And the reason this is the case is because the context for Quintilian's discussion of aesthetic language is his general consideration of pathos. Um, and pathos was one of three techniques that rhetoricians might use to persuade their audience. Um, but pathos, more than the other techniques, was specifically understood to appeal to the emotions. So, you know, something is pathetic. Um, it's meant to really uh, get you at the emotional level. So, so to, you know, just kind of cut to the chase, for Quintilian and the classical rhetorical tradition in general, the idea doesn't really exist that what we would call the aesthetic effective language um, can ever really be considered apart from the way it might move us into action through an appeal to our emotions. So the pleasure afforded by aesthetic language is part of this motivational process as well and will ideally move us toward an appropriate emotive response. Um, in, in contemporary aesthetic theory, you know, there's a whole, not very recognized at the moment, but there's a whole stream devoted to theories that 
understand the aesthetic aesthetics to be about the moving of, of emotions. And maybe it's more, more so true now with someone, say, like Nussbaum, who's not coming at the problem, um, particularly from an aesthetics point of view. She's coming at it from an ethics point of view, but, and she finds, uh, she finds all of the issues um, that emerge in tragic drama she sees tragic drama as being a way in which we can uh, teach, we can be informed uh, as human beings, you know, about how it is we might care for other people in a compassionate way. So let me put that into context of the idea that you introduced, which is that the, there's this aesthetic response, which is devoted, you know, to pleasure and a pleasure of a certain discrete kind. And that idea is really this notion of a kind of a disinterested or discrete pleasure with no other purpose uh, is attached to the 18th century development that is associated with the aesthetics of Kant. And so here it's worth noting that the term aesthetic itself was only really introduced in the philosophical lexicon during the 18th century. So what we have in the classical rhetorical tradition that fueled the writing of tragedy in the West is um, another approach to what we would call the aesthetic. It's a tradition that really presumes the aesthetic includes the possibility of certain kinds of moral action um, with the emphasis being on the action. So this problem that you note really does you know, belong to the 18th century and it, precisely the way you lay it as you know, some kind of problem between the two. And so you have 18th century writers going to great lengths to uh, deal with what they call schadenfreude, which is a kind of pleasure that comes out of the watching uh, represented some kind of suffering or spiritual pain. So it creates a, a difficult you know, kind of problem that, again, I don't think the, uh, the classical tradition would have recognized as a problem uh, because, because any kind of delight was motivational, you know, headed in the direction of some kind of human action, motivational in that sense. So how would you argue for the relevance of an aesthetics of compassion today? What you've already mentioned is one example, that it has the potential to break open the assumption that aesthetic experience is contemplative and that it can bring the emotions back into play. Uh, and you're welcome to expand on that. But I also wonder if there are other ways in which this approach becomes particularly relevant to or prominent in the arts or aesthetics today. So, I mean, I, the first thing to recognize, I mean, I, it came up in sort of what I was just talking about, that there has been a strong reaction to the, the limitations of Kantian aesthetics, you know, since the, the later part of the 20th century. For me, one of the Oh, maybe one of the most fun books um, on this topic was by Terry Eagleton, um, published in 1990, called The Ideology of the Aesthetic, uh, that really regarded sort of the 18th century development of aesthetics as a branch of philosophy as a peculiarly enlightenment phenomenon, you know, just suited to the concerns of the bourgeoisie, um, you know, despite the fact that, you know, there had been a moral uh, role for aesthetics for most of the history of philosophy up until the 18th century. So if you're in looking at the aesthetics of compassion, you're looking to a tradition that presumes an ethical relevance for art um, is in keeping with this general movement in philosophical aesthetics today. 
um, towards considerations of ethical criticism by people such as um, Noel Carroll in analytic philosophy. Again, Martha Nussbaum from the angle of ethics itself. Uh, and, and closer to home, ICS's Lambert Seidevard has himself re-examined the modernist paradigm of artistic autonomy um, from the angle of social responsibility in his book, uh, Art in Public. So the ethics of aesthetics has, has come back uh, and this kind of course, you know, where you, you begin to look at the aesthetic affect as actually having an affect, I think more specific to the issue of compassion is the centrality of imagination to the way compassion has been understood and theorized. So that's another reason why a course like this, which will look at the way in which uh, imagination supports this notion of compassion, Again, it is a major theme of the mid and late 18th century, both moral and aesthetic, that sympathy or compassion, how the uh, individual feels for other people and approaches the world at large, really relies on the capacity of imagination to imagine into the concerns uh, of others. So rec recovering this ethical capacity of imagination has become uh, an important theme too in the work of contemporary philosophers like Richard Carney. Well, and, and he relies on Levinas, Emmanuel Levinas, for some of his um, understandings of confronting the other as part of what art could be doing, even therapeutically. So you mentioned that you wanted to bring Augustine into play a bit more in this iteration of the course, specifically for being a key figure who brings this classical idea of aesthetics into contact with the Christian world. And you mentioned Michelangelo at the beginning and the Pietà as this huge Christian symbol of compassion on the one hand, and as a symbol of the artistic task on the other. So I wonder if you could expand on this a bit more, if you could um, bring out the connection between the Christian religious tradition of compassion and the artistic understanding of the role of compassion. Yeah, well, there is an important and really defining Christianization of the classical tradition of tragic drama uh, in the Divine Comedy of Dante, even though he calls the work a comedy. But you will, you'll have to tune into the course to hear why he does so. Authentic compassion for others is the guiding principle of the book from the beginning to end. It starts with, it starts with the compassion of a number of female entities in heaven, looking on a, a suffering a suffering pilgrim in the, in the figure of the poet Dante Alighieri. And their compassion is what moves him to some kind of uh, salvation, basically, uh, over the period, the course of, of three days. But what's really striking about the work, I think from the vantage point of art and aesthetics, is that over the course of the book, Dante conceives of the work of the artist in terms similar to the work of any Christian who accepts the challenge to channel God's compassion for, sin for sinful humanity to others through works that express that compassion. So there's a one-to-one -one correlation between what an artist does vocationally, and this is an Aristotelian idea, but fulfilling uh, our vocation as a human being to do, to make, and to think. In the case of doing, artists are their end uh, is to uh, fulfill, to realize 
their ability to make. And in doing that, they are acting in a way that any Christian would act in creating things that will uh, elicit, um, that will channel, I think channel is the way to say it, channel the, the, the divine compassion for our a suffering humanity um, back to others, you know, to, to really bring that love through our own creations to uh, others who experience our art uh, in order that, um, that they can be motivated, that they can be participant um, in this, you know, all-consuming compassion, which answers, you know, the entire problem of human suffering at large. So the Christian tradition certainly takes this enormous tradition of tragedy, which, um, you know, comes to terms with all the things that deserving or undeserving human, humans face in this world in, as, as moments of evil, as moments of, you know, that create suffering. Uh, and of course, it provides um, an answer to that in the, in, in the form of, of a salvific Christ. So, yes, yes, the, the, uh, there is a strong Christian element. And we'll be looking in the course, not just at Dante, uh, but also to Shakespeare, and you know, who also takes up this theme, um, uh, and we'll see it. We'll see the moments that it dissolves, um, where you might say the modern tendency to interpret the, the the world as simply a tragic world for which there is no, no answer. Um, you know what that does uh, to uh, this Christian notion. Of, of there being some kind of salvific grace, um, compassion for our suffering that, that uh, you know, gives us, um, you know, that gives us eternal hope. Yeah, and this is actually to go back to Michelangelo, this is the meaning that Michelangelo assigns to his various pietas. He sees it both as a, shall we say, a, a metaphor for his, what he does as an artist, um, but he also sees it as speaking to the tragedy of human suffering, offered through um, the compassion of the Virgin for the dead Christ in his suffering, in his passion. Um, and that becomes a way in, not only to, for the Virgin to become a co-redeemer, a co-redemptrix with the figure of Christ, but it allows the individual Christian to also co-create, in a sense, towards salvation, you know, towards some kind of promise. So are there one or two resources you might leave us with that uh, someone who would like to start learning about the aesthetics of compassion or any of these topics that you've mentioned um, could start with or that you yourself have found particularly helpful for your own studies? I mean, a very evocative book and one that dances alongside uh, the, the Christian Christianization of, the, of tragic drama is Rudolf Steiner's The Death of Tragedy you know, which really tries to make a case for um, what happens in modernity, to the value that the classical tradition of necessity places, you know, tragedy, if, unless there's some value placed on life, tragedy makes no difference. And they, there is a dilemma in modernity uh, around the value. We don't know how to value the value that we place on life. Now, people have responded to that, but you know, as maybe a, an over, much too overarching interpretation um, of the modern situation. But it's a very evocative book, so The Death of Tragedy. Um, Martha Nussbaum's 
uh, up, upheavals of thought, the intelligence of emotions. Uh, she also, you know, has written very specifically on compassion as maybe the moral emotion, but that comes up in upheavals of thought. And the first half of the book is devoted to to the psychology of compassion uh, and how it develops. Um, and I think that I, you know, I've recently seen, you know, sort of just in passing science on, you know, how as children, one of the first things we seem to be able to do is to recognize when someone needs something. So anyway, she takes it up um, and, I, and I haven't myself given it as much time as I've given the other parts of the book. The other one, if you like to read Eagleton, although he's quite overwhelming at times, although a, a wonderful writer, um, but you're just, uh, it's so much to digest is called um, Sweet Violence, The Idea of the Tragic. Uh, he gives a very good summary of, um, of the notion of pity, um, but he fits it, it's only one chapter within this book. That's it for our show this week. And with that, we'll be taking a few weeks break before getting back into regular podcasting for the fall semester. We have some exciting ideas brewing, so stay tuned for that. If you'd like to learn more about this course, The Aesthetics of Compassion, taking place remotely this fall every Thursday from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern Time, starting on September 17, you can visit our website at www.icscanada.edu. You can also email our registrar, Elizabeth Aras, at academic-registrar at icscanada.edu with any questions you might have or to register. There are serious discounts available for first-time auditors for any of our fall courses, so have a look for yourself at what's on offer and help us spread the word. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on the website just mentioned. And if anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow me as at Beware the Yeti, and you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends. Mm-hmm.